Jesus said, let the children come to me. And the way that we engage with Christ, we engage him through the word. And the word is a central part of a Protestant worship service. Might be helpful to understand maybe why I do what I do. Um, You may notice that we give longer time to the teaching of God's word than maybe you might find at perhaps a Catholic service. And, And the reason for that is the Protestant understanding that it is Scripture alone which is our authority. I, as a minister of the gospel, I'm instructed with the responsibility to teach the word of God so that the word of God might move within hearts of the listeners and that be the authority that's taken by the Holy Spirit and impressed upon the heart. And so as I teach the word, it's a little bit of a longer time uh, than you might experience in other places, but that's in part due to the elevated place that we give the word of God. And secondly, I think it's also helpful to note that while I try to make my sermons interesting as possible, they're largely free of personal personality in the sense that I'm not here to sell you about me as a spiritual leader for you. The word of God is the leader and it should be the one that directs you. And so as I teach the word of God, it's important to, from time to time, take stock and understand why we do what we do. And so giving central place to the word of God is how we honor the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to 55, and verse 67 to 79, these are two songs that are presented to us in the mixture of the Christmas story. We're going to look at these in depth this morning. And uh, the Christmas stories in the book of Luke are condensed. It only takes probably 20 minutes max to read through chapter 1 and chapter 2, but there's a a condensing of events into a very short narrative structure. It's the highlights the key happenings that bring about the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, I know that there is sometimes debate over the date on when Jesus was born. That may not be something that affects you directly, but there are some people who question whether or not Jesus was born on December the 25th. But let's just say for argument's sake that that is the case. Then... Mary's song that we're going to look at, sometimes called the Magnificat, um, would have occurred likely in the spring, in March, maybe mid, mid-March. Uh, Zechariah's song would have occurred likely in June. And uh, sometimes people will, will put a protest and say, well, you know, um, December the 25th can't work because uh, the shepherds were attending their flocks at night. Usually, they say, sheep were taken into enclosures, into caves, maybe, and uh, 
covered areas between November to March, and they weren't maybe at in the fields at night. Now that might seem like a conclusive argument, but it really may have been a mild winter. And the shepherds were near Bethlehem instead of being out in the wilderness. And there is Jewish tradition that tells us that sheep were generally kept around Bethlehem all year long because of the proximity to the temple and needing quick access for sheep for sacrificial systems. Now, those sheep that were considered to be worthy sheep were in the fields likely 30 days prior to, prior to Passover. And if you do the quick work back through the timeline, 30 days prior to to the Passover would bring us back to about mid-February. And so it's not unlikely that a late date of December could have been a time frame, or as the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, likes to talk about January 6th being the Christmas uh, date, either of those are probably pretty good options. Nevertheless, good storytelling requires that we kind of condense things down, as I said, to get the highlights. And that's what we have here. Just after Gabriel explained to Mary how that she would conceive without being married, she picked up all of her necessary things and headed down south towards Judean hillside to see her cousin Elizabeth. When she arrives, Elizabeth cries out. She says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment that was spoken to her from the Lord. How did Elizabeth know? See, when Mary called into the house, probably called into the house to announce that she had come and arrived, baby John, who at that point was six months in her belly, moved and jumped and kind of signaled something significant. But still we have to ask ourselves, <laughs> but how did Elizabeth really know? Well, it was because the scriptures say that she was filled with, with the Holy Spirit, and given special prophetic utterance about the baby that was in Mary's womb. Mary had to, you know, had come for a couple of reasons. I personally believe that Mary came looking for shelter, probably to protect her from the scorn she was going to start showing in near time. But Elizabeth also was going to need some help. Maybe because of her advanced age around the house, she would need an extra hand to help so not to put undue stress upon her because she's older and this is an un, a pregnancy that might be considered to be high risk. Elizabeth is going to maybe even have a time of bed rest as the day gets closer. And so when Mary arrives in Judea, she hears that she is blessed among women and the baby in her womb is blessed. And she spontaneously, spontaneously praises God, her Savior. 
And here we find ourselves mid-March. We have the song that's called the Magnificat. Let's read the words of the song that Mary sang. Verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abram and to the offspring, his offspring forever. Her soul magnifies. She's, she's not like some who sing, who are just simply mouthing words. She's giving her whole heart to song because she has a deep affection for God. In speaking with joy from the heart, she is describing God as her Savior. And this is an important point. Until God is recognized as your Savior, you will remain in doubt and anxiety and not be able to sing with all your soul. When Abby and I were students at Bob Jones University, we sang in a choral ensemble. The campus at that time had six choirs of students that rotated for special events. In the fall of 1997, the six BJU choirs combined with Furman University to sing together and perform Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the Choral Symphony, and it was sung in German. It was sung at the Performing Arts in downtown Greenville. And the only thing that I can remember today singing was Freude, Freude, and alle Menschen, alle Menschen. Those were the only things that I can kind of recall today. It was actually a challenge for me to sing the lyrics because German is not my mother tongue. Some would even question whether or not English was my mother tongue. But Mary's soul could not magnify God if the language of heaven were not her mother tongue. What is that mother tongue? She expresses the words of heaven. He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. He who is mighty has done great things for me. You see, the language of heaven is grace to the foolish. It is grace to the weak. It is grace to the low and to those who are less than the low who are really, in the end, nothing compared to God. And the greatest praise in heaven will not come from the greatest donor, 
It will come from the faithful widow's mite. Mary, like the widow, had given to God all of her heart. You see, this is God's pattern. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. If our hearts are filled with pride, we don't even think about God, let alone fear him. And that's God's pattern. It's so much more important that we put all of our time in this existence, not to necessarily getting and gaining of more wealth as it is of knowing God, like lowly Mary. Wealth is temporary, but God is forever. There is praise that she expresses to God's grace to her as an individual, but there is also praise that she expresses for God's grace to all mankind. She recognizes that she is a little drop in an ocean of what God is doing in the world. And Mary, in verse 51 to 53, talks about more broadly about his graciousness to mankind in general. Uh, he has sown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And he's talk she's talking more broadly about how God's pattern works itself out in the world. God is the one who exercises authority over the affairs of mankind, which on the one hand can be very perplexing, and on the other hand it can be very encouraging. On the perplexing side, we can see periods and seasons where the wicked seem to be having their own way. They get away with anything and everything. But will they have their way forever? It's really just an illusion. And we ought not get ourselves warped in, in anxiety thinking that that will be the way it always is. Mary ascribes <coughs> the rise and fall of the powerful not to the whims of fate, but to the providence of God. It is God's way in the world. Unbelievers in the Middle Ages used to talk about God's way in the world. This is unbelievers speaking. They would talk about the wheel of fortune. Uh, this is before Pat Sajak and Vanna White. But in the Middle Ages... There was a concept called Rota Fortunae. There was a symbol of the, it was a symbol of a, a circular wheel that was being turned by a, a, a woman, and around the wheel, you didn't know quite what you were going to get. And it's kind of an awkward picture for us as moderns, but on this great wheel, there were, you know, kings, and then there were plagues, and there was pleasures and disasters, and you didn't know what was going to come around the bend. And so it became a metaphor of, of life and the spin of the goddess Fortuna. This is not how, God, how Mary is talking about God. He's talking about, she's talking about God as the gracious governor of the world 
who governs the world and every revolution of his wheel, every rotation of his mighty hand, God is the one moving. <coughs> the wickedness of men is actually just the cause for their own immediate destruction. God is the one who permits the nations to rage, but he then scatters, she says, scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart. You see, during the unveiling of time, God is doing a work, even as the wicked rage, God is also in the background redeeming people of lowly estate. He is bringing the awareness of himself to simple people. God is in the pattern of bringing grace to the nations gradually over time. God is at work. Satan is just a puppet. It's all in the master's wise hands. She also praises God for his grace, not just to herself, not to the world, not just even to the world in general, but she kind of takes a kind of a mediating step back from the broad view of the world and begins to praise God for his grace to Israel. Verse 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary knows her Bible. She knows her Bible well. And she remembers the promises that were made to her forefathers. An irrevocable covenant was made to the offspring of Abraham to inherit a land, the land that Abraham sojourned in. And the last line of Mary's song is the key feature of this covenant that was made with Abraham. We don't have quotation marks in our modern English translations, but this would be a place where it would be a quotation mark from the Abrahamic covenant. And she reflects and said this was handed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. This was something that God is remembering and his mercy is being made known. God is and has ever been gracious to Israel. She has not deserved it through the years. But that's the nature of God's grace. And because God is gracious to Israel, I think it's important for us to remember that because he is keeping covenant with Israel, he is going to keep covenant with us. Zechariah's song, which we will turn to in a moment, picks up upon this theme of God's faithfulness through the generations in keeping covenant with Abraham, with David, and also with Adam. Someone asked me last Sunday whether Zechariah was deaf and whether or not he was also mute. You know, he couldn't speak. Could he then therefore not hear either? And I do believe, after thinking about that a little bit more, that he was in a world of silence until his baby was born in mid-June. And so I want us to move quickly into that second song, and I want to pick up these themes of God's covenant faithfulness 
to his people because it should fill us with a sense of confidence that God will keep his promises to us who are lowly Gentiles. So 68 through 79, let's take a look at these words that Zechariah wrote. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah recognized that God was keeping covenant. Notice that he says, with our fathers, with our fathers, um, we read that, uh, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has redeemed us and raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. And in verse 72, to show mercy promised to our fathers. This is how Mary left off her song. Now, Ezekiel is picking up on this same theme. Er, not Ezekiel, Zechariah. If you can't tell, my head is pretty thick right now. But in this song, I want to point out the relationship that we have with Israel through covenant that God has made in the beginning with Adam and Eve. And I trust that it may sound funny to you that to hear our fathers, particularly if you were not Jewish, Many of us here, I believe, probably are non-Jewish, but there may be some who have Jewish roots and ancestry. The redemption of Israel is a promise for Israel that has broader implications for you and I who may not have any Jewish stock in us. And the kindness that God expresses to Israel is a statement of his intention to bring salvation to people for all the nations. Now in this song, as I said, Mary, Mary's motif is picked up by Zechariah. And the song of praise is expressed to God for keeping his covenant to David, to Abraham. And also I will show you how it's also kept to Adam. Verse 68 to 71. We see first God's praise is praised for keeping covenant with David. You see, God promised David a dynasty of kings who would rule from Jerusalem forever. And when Israel fell 
in the Old Testament to the Babylonians in 587 B.C., this hope would have appeared to have been a false hope. And when the throne of David was cast down in verse 69, we have the sense that it was cast down because it has to be raised up. And the people were scattered. The hope of salvation appeared to have been all but perished. The description that is given here of a horn of salvation is a metaphor for saving power in verse 68. Saving power. A horn on an animal is a symbol of power. I know that over this last couple of weeks, there have been some pretty sizable horns or antlers that have been harvested. I've seen your pictures. But they're symbols of power. And Zechariah is joyful now because he's seeing a way for the renewal of Israel by the restoration of the Davidic dynasty. Why? Well, he personally knows that his wife is from the tribe of David. He also knows what happened to Mary just a few months earlier. You see, the root of Jesse has been underground a long time, but now it's getting ready to burst up through the ground. It's getting ready to, to come up, and his son John would be the one to introduce the return of the king. Finally, the king is going to appear. An Israeli hope that is displayed on their flag is still operative. When we think of the Star of David on the flag, they are still looking forward to the coming of their Messiah. Obviously, they're blinded at the moment. They don't realize that their Messiah has come and will be coming again. Of all people, perhaps, there have been no people as hated as much as the Jews. Verse 71, we should, I think, given current events, recognize what Zechariah says. He says, we are going to be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. All who hate us. Hatred of Israel is satanic in its origin. Satan has been like a raging dragon seeking to destroy Israel for centuries. And the day is coming when that dragon will be chained and bound for a thousand years. And all Israel will recognize that the son of David is their Messiah. And the Gentiles will rejoice with Israel. We will not be offended that they are getting the opportunity to see the glory of their Messiah sitting in their city and all nations coming and bowing to him. All nations will come and reverence the one. I'm remark it's remarkable to me how that he begins with David, but then takes a step backward from David and then begins to say, well, this was the covenant that was expressed to Abraham as well. God has had an outstanding obligation to give Israel all of its inheritance in the land of Canaan. We look at, Can at, at Israel today and we see the land, we recognize they don't have all of the land that they had been promised. They've been promised all the way to the Euphrates. They've been promised up through the Nile. They don't have all of that territory. They've never had all of that territory. That's still outstanding. 
And the oath that he says in verse 74, he says, And the oath that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. This is a reference by Zechariah to having a national identity, a place upon the earth. You see, since the birth of Christianity, you would think, you would think that Satan would give up his systematic effort to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Are you aware that Islam rewrote the story of God's graciousness to Abraham to provide a sacrifice for Isaac up on Mount Moriah. They rewrote that story, and they, instead of putting Isaac being bound and laid upon the altar, it was Ishmael. A lamb was provided for Isaac, not for Ishmael. And that's a satanic twisting. And behind anti-Semitism, there are the fangs of the diabolical serpent. And he is crafty. He can turn multitudes into bloodthirsty hounds in the name of social justice, cleanliness concern, and racial purity. From the river to the sea is a call for the removal of the Jewish people from their land. Since the birth of Christianity, I want to say this again. You would think that Satan would give up his systematic attempt to wipe Israel off the earth. It may very well be that Satan knows that God's people will see their Messiah coming in the clouds. But that's referring to the second coming. We're looking now at the first. All of these things parallel to the second. There is praise, and lastly, I want to point out here, praise to God for keeping covenant with Adam. And this is where the applicability of what God has been doing and showing his faithfulness to Israel comes to us. Because we're not Jewish by birth. Adam, in these verses 76 to 79, is not directly named However, the purposes for which Jesus Christ came the first time make it abundantly clear that he is coming to satisfy the promises that were made to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. If you remember, Adam and Eve lost sweet fellowship with God. They walked in the cool of the evening. Can you imagine like, what would that have been like to, like, walk in the cool of the evening with God? What do you think you would talk about? I mean, have you ever heard the chatter of children who come home from school and they want to tell you about everything that they just experienced while they were gone for you from, like, eight hours? Or maybe they've been off at college, they come down and they come and they tell you everything that they did? Maybe it's them telling you about the the first baseball game. What was it like to be catcher, to be fielder? What was it like to hit that ball off the tee? They're filled with excitement. Father, I opened a pomegranate today and I found it had hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of these little red juicy berries. They're the sweetest things I've ever tasted. Thank you for creating that for me, Father. 
about all the discoveries that have been made through the centuries and people have not been able to have the frame of mind to tell their heavenly father that they have discovered these things. See, our sin separates us from our holy father. But God nevertheless kept covenant with Abraham or with Adam and promised an offspring who would come to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent was the one who introduced Adam and Eve to sin, and that sin separated them from the Father. The serpent said in, or God said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Which is worse, to have a bruise to the head or a bruise to the heel? If I had my pick, I would definitely take the heel over the head. What is being talked about in that verse is that the future offspring that would come out of the, the seed of Adam and Eve would bruise Satan's head. And this is an obvious Maybe not so much obvious to us, but it is biblically an obvious reference to the crucifixion of Christ in which Satan bruised him by the heel. Oh, it looked, it looked like it was all over, didn't it? But the resurrection showed that it was really only the heel that had been bruised. And in the resurrection, Satan and distance from God was eliminated. After telling Adam and Eve about his plan, which would recreate reconciliation, back in the beginning, God slaughtered an innocent animal and gave skins to cover up their nakedness. That sacrifice was done to, to cover over. A sin, a sacrifice was made so that they might be for, forgiven. You see, in this last closing lines, Zacharias is recognizing that the child that will come from him and Elizabeth will be the one who will announce the forerunner of the one who's coming from the Most High, who is going to be called the Most High. He's referring to Jesus, the Son of God. John would come to prepare what? The world to receive the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We Gentiles who sit in darkness, as Zechariah describes, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace, this is the answer for which every nation has been longing for since the days of Adam and Eve. The light has dawned and it dawned in Galilee, but then it peaked in an empty tomb. We have a vested interest in how God keeps his covenant with Israel because the certainty of our own redemption is immediately tied to their future as God keeps his covenant. God promised to bring a son of David. He promised to fill out their land claims. All of these things are on the horizon. And if God does not keep covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what makes us think 
that he's going to keep covenant with us. This is our hope as much as it is the Jewish hope. And so we are looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ to rule and to reign upon the earth and answer the expectations of the Jewish people that they have had for over a millennium. And I want us to take home this truth this morning that because God does keep his promises, we can know true comfort and we can have true joy. In the first coming of Christ, he answered the need that we all have. We have the need for a forgiveness of our own personal sin. That was atoned for. The sacrifice was made once for all. And now we receive it by faith. Our faith is not a work. We're looking with eyes towards the finished work of Christ. And this is our eternal hope. We can have every confidence that we will be raised from the dead because Jesus was raised. Israel is also going to be raised as well. Let's pray.